I don't think people truly understand. People think about business as it's like, some people think about business as, as if it's a lot of X's and O's and it's very impersonal. Man, it is so personal. When you secure private equity funding, you're not just creating a financial relationship, you're making that investor part of your inner circle. So how do you identify the right partner? Maybe just the way some people do it, but I'd say the way half the people in the world do it, in our business, it's so personal and your heart just explodes with love. Being a sponsor-backed or public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. And over the last 20 plus years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market, the media, and other stakeholder groups. We'll demystify these groups so public companies can learn and unlock their true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. You know, the best private equity professionals are in the trenches right alongside their portfolio companies. They're not just financial investors, but they bring operational and strategic expertise and oversight. And the best partners develop personal relationships and they truly become part of the team. Selling a company to a financial sponsor can be daunting, intimidating, a lot of work, but the right partner is key. And my good friend, Rob Sharp, can shed some light on what private equity looks for in portfolio companies and how the relationship grows over time. Rob has been on both sides of the desk. He's a very experienced senior private equity professional with an amazing track record of generating returns for investors. He's also put his money where his mouth is, so to speak, and taken that skill set and started a company called Ramey Brook with his brilliant and talented wife, Ramey. It's really rare to have that combination. So it's safe to say that Rob is a professional investor and really knows how to unlock shareholder value. He's also a great person and a great friend of mine. Let's enter the arena with Rob Sharp. When I was in college, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And when I was in high school and I was in elementary school, you know, driven by, you know, seeing your family and not being entrepreneurs, but being very creative people who gave me the flexibility to think about things and dream about things. They didn't have any money, but they always supported any crazy idea I had. So in college, I really did want to be an entrepreneur. Worked on a lot of businesses with my roommates freshman year, actually. One of them was Ben & Jerry's. We were looking to franchise Ben & Jerry's and had and almost had the rights to do that in New York. And that fell apart and taught me a lesson as a freshman in college. Make sure you work double hard, double smart. Try to get some money behind you yourself so that you weren't dependent upon other people for money when you didn't have any money. So when I got out of college, I worked very hard in college and I had a lot of fun in college too, Tom, as I'm sure you did. So we all worked hard and played hard and decided to go to business school right away because I was in a rush, which in, in retrospect, people shouldn't be in such a rush, but I was. And so I went to Columbia. I was very fortunate to have uh, the Bromfin family pay for me so I could do that. So I'm forever indebted to them. And then got right into investment banking. So I went to work at Drexel Burnham at the end of Drexel's run in their M&A group which was a great place with, filled with great people. I went into investment banking because it was a dynamic field at that time, you know, in the late eighties, it was very hot. It was a place that a lot of people wanted to work. You know, you could be a young guy, have a lot of responsibility and make good money. 
you know, if you worked hard. And so that's what I was focused on. I was focused on a place I could have responsibility, learn a lot from smart people. And if I did a good job, I could make good money. Was Mike Milken there when you were there at the end or did he transitioned out of there at that point, Rob? He was there in 88. So I was a uh, summer associate in 88 as well. And and he was there. So that was- That's kind of cool. That was interesting. Yeah, it was kind of cool. He came to the Christmas party, helicoptered in and gave everybody a bonus <laughs> and helicoptered out. Yeah. I want to be that guy someday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he was something else. That's cool. So you couldn't ask for a better uh, starting point and, and a firm that just invented a complete market for high yield basically, and had such transformative, you know, you and I worked on the casino business together. There'd be no Las Vegas without Mike Milken, probably. So that is like super cool. And then you went to Bankers Trust after that. No, actually after Drexel, and Drexel was a great place. Just want to say that great guys, smart people, really learned a lot. And then when people went everywhere after it folded, you had relationships everywhere, which was really interesting. But after that, I went to work for a client of the firm, a very small private equity firm for four years, doing both actually private equity for the owner and uh, real estate securitizations. We did some of the single owner, multi-unit, multi-building real estate securitizations. So these are pretty big ones, a few hundred million each at a time when those were not common. These were literally... I think the first two we did were the first two. So that was really interesting. I got to do a lot of real estate. It was very entrepreneurial. I got to do corporate business. I was young. I was still 25 when I started out there, probably 26. And I tried to make, I was 30 something, you know? Yeah. We did some great business. And then I went to Bankers Trust with a bunch of my friends who were at Drexel. Yeah. So a lot of guys from Drexel were at Bankers Trust at that time. I met my wife to be, and I knew I had to buy her a ring. And I said, I need a big bonus. So I got to go back into investment banking yeah. <laughs> and I need certainty on my bonus, Tom, versus all the risk we were all taking back then in the early nineties. And it was great. Bankers Trust, as you know, and I worked, we worked together. We were good buddies. It was a great place, really dynamic. A lot like Drexel was when I got to Drexel, BT was a great place. What always struck me about you, Rob, obviously, you know, you have the goods and are able to do the job, but I, I always felt like at a young age, you were really good at going in a room and having like presence and inspiring confidence with people who are like older than you and how you dealt with people and how diplomatically you have to go in a room and be liked and have great ideas, but sometimes have to make the ideas, you know, the CEO's idea. Who did you learn that from? Were there people who influenced you to be good at that? Or is it just something that you just kind of, it's a natural thing for you? I think all of us learn from people that we work with, you know, great people that we, you know, idolize, but you look at it and you say, wow, that guy's or that woman is very good. And you see how they approach their business. I do think though, a lot of that comes from your childhood. I, you know, I really believe that. I swear, you know, my mother, she was a housewife, became a teacher. She didn't have any money, but she always, she just always said you could do anything you want to do, which is a lot of pressure on a kid. I wouldn't advise parents to say that these days, yeah. but you can do anything you want to do. You're great and be confident and, you know, make mistakes and do anything you want to do. So I grew up being humble, but believing that I could do things if I worked really hard. And I guess my family, my grandfather was a very tough guy. You really had to be calm around him. He was very kind of like, violence the wrong word because he wouldn't beat you, but I mean. Calm and measured in your approach. Yeah. When you're around someone who's angry all the time, you know, he was like violently angry all the time, my grandfather. So all of us in my family grew up extremely diplomatic and calm Yeah, because you couldn't be non-diplomatic and not calm around him because he would go bonkers. I mean, you wouldn't even do it, right? Because there's one guy there who was so not calm 
Yeah. He, he was not calm for everybody. So everybody else was like really nice and really calm <laughs> actually thinking about it, right? If he could see you now, he'd be blown away. I love him, man. I hope he can. He was the greatest. Of course. But that's what I think, Tom. I think it comes from being around people like that, like really interesting people who are tough. Yeah. And you just learn how to speak to people and you have respect for people. And you realize that we're all just human beings and no one's better than the other just because they have money or power, you know? So when I go in a room, I'd be nervous, but I'd be calm. You and I did that quite a bit. I didn't care who I was speaking to. The reason I asked the question is I, I feel like I learned a lot uh, from you and a few other people and just being, you know, being able to get in the room with a, a potential client who's a CEO or a board member and just how to handle yourself and how to talk to people. Yeah. Taught me a lot and with ICR, but back to BT, I remember when you left, you went to Mid-Ocean, which wasn't called Mid-Ocean at the time, but did you know you wanted to kind of do a stint in banking and then get back into private equity? Was that kind of the plan or did it happen by accident? Yeah, no, that that was that would have been ideal, right? That's you sort of have your plan and then you sort of see what actually happens in life. But, and actually at that time I went to InvestCorp. So I, I was covering InvestCorp as a bankrupt BT or one of my many clients. Yeah. And so I went to InvestCorp for a number of years. I was a partner there. That was a great firm as well. We did a lot of good business, real first class place, wonderful people. And yeah, when I was in banking, I really did think about, and even when I was in college, I wanted to be in private equity because that's what you read about, right? So here you are, this young guy and you're dreaming about things, right? I'm dreaming about making money. I'm dreaming about helping my family. Yep. You read the paper and you read about all the private equity guys are doing really interesting things. They seem to be making a lot of money. Yeah. So I want to be I want to be where people are doing interesting things and making a lot of money. That seemed like a good strategy. Yeah. But in order to get there, you had to work really hard. And banking was a great place to start because it gave you great training, as you know. So investment banking, I, I still think banking and investment banking are great training grounds for anybody in any career. Um, I built relationships. I, I worked hard for people. I did a good job for people. And then you know what happens. Yeah. Your client says, well, boy, I, I like you, you know, and I have a need. And that's what the guys in InvestCorp said. So I was very lucky. I went over there. Another good friend of mine went over there at the same time. And I was there many years and it was great. And then you're in private equity. So you're in it and I never left it. Then I went to DB Capital. Deutsche Bank had bought Bankers Trust. My boss, everybody's boss at Bankers Trust and Banking at the time, Ted Virtue, had taken over global private equity. Your boss as well. Yeah. He gave me a call and, and I said, this sounded great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and go back to Bankers Trust, which is now Deutsche Bank, and help run with a number of guys great guys. I was a partner in the in the North American private equity group. There was a global group there and we had a head, great guy. And we did good business there. We did really good business there. Then we bought that business. Deutsche Bank went through a, a lot of problems, as you know, or a lot of banks went through a lot of problems, but they did at that time. And that we had the opportunity to buy our business out of Deutsche Bank, which we did at the beginning of 03 for a billion six with the backing of uh, a small number of institutions and wealthy families. And then I was there between DB Capital and Mid-Ocean Partners, which is what we renamed ourselves. I was there 15 years before leaving. Rob's met with thousands of management teams over his career in private equity. And I asked him what he looks for during those initial meetings and what management can do to increase their odds of a great partnership with a high quality private equity firm. When I meet guys, first thing I'm looking for is a personal connection. I'm looking to talk to somebody and uh, get a sense for his personality, the way he 
his values, the way he, the things he values in life, the way he thinks about people. And I'm looking to look across at somebody, man or woman, and say, that's a great guy. Yep. First and foremost, that's a really, uh, that, that's a great woman. That's a great man. What a wonderful person. I think this is a nice person who shares my values, you know, which are about treating everybody with respect. Well, as humans, no one's better than the other. They don't come in acting haughty. They come in acting human. And you you associate, you can see yourself being friends with them, truthfully, because yep. these transactions become so personal in private equity, as you know, Tom, you know, that your teams you work with become like family, right? Yeah. And, you know, their family is important to you. It's not just them. It's like their kids and their wives. And so the first thing I look for is that personal connection. So I would advise people when they, if you're a management team, and I'm a manager now, as you are, is when you're meeting with people, you find people that connect with you. You know, it doesn't mean the way you connect with someone may not be the connection I'm looking to make or Tom Ryan's looking to make. Whoever, whatever kind of connection you as a manager are looking to make, an executive, you know, seek that out in the person across from you. And as a private equity guy, that's what I do. So first, if I leave a meeting and I say, I do not like this guy, or I cannot see myself growing into a personal relationship that I'm going to spend years of my life with looking after him and his family and him looking after me and my family, I don't want to do business with them. Yeah. And then the second thing is, you know, is, is, is really, and this, the, what we do at our companies, I talk about it all the time, is be a great human being. I'm looking for great human beings that, you know, value being a nice person, a partner, uplifting others. They value family, being kind. And then you got to be a killer in business. Like you, you got to be a killer. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like I hate to use the word killer, but you got to be smart, detail oriented. You got a game plan. You're a leader. Aggressive. And so it's that combination of a nice human being, but a leader, and then a great business person and whatever you're doing and a leader. That is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that combination. Nothing's perfect because I'm not perfect. But if you see that really great human being who kicks ass, you know, you say, wow, I want to be. I want to be on the business train with that guy. I want to work with that guy. That's what I look for. Yeah. I always think, you know, you go into something with high hopes, investing in a company, let's say, but you have to think in the back of your mind, all right, how's this all going to go if the chips are down, right? That's kind of the test of character that you're talking about. That's right. Don't be overhandled. There's no need to rehearse, like going into a meeting, be yourself, be genuine, be honest about what you're good at and what you might not be good at. And, you know, you can infill people around you who are good, good at stuff that you aren't good at. Right. So. Absolutely. I have to imagine there's no better feeling than a big win-win for someone in your shoes as a private equity professional and a team of like awesome people who've just crushed it. Oh, right? I mean, beautiful. do you have a couple of examples of that, that you could share? You don't, don't have to name names or anything if you don't want, but just a couple of transactions that maybe just one or two, just because uh, we'd run out of time otherwise, that just really were home runs for you guys and management and all the employees and everybody. There's so, so many. I'm fortunate of the 15 lead buyouts I did, only one I lost money on. And, and if anybody says they didn't lose money, they have not done private equity or, or business in general, or they just got darn lucky. I go back to the, the early Jenny Craig deals with, with the ACI, we did that. Carter's one of my first deals in InvestCorp. That was such a great transaction. Waterpick, Bushnell, Totes Isotoner, Agilex, Thomas right now. Just watching VitaQuest with Keith Frankel, the greatest human being alive. Telly Savala. Yeah, yeah. I got to get him on You got to watch that. He is, he's the, the best. I just saw him yesterday at his golf outing. I came for dinner. 
couldn't play golf. What's great is when you have those great transactions, people work so hard. None of them are easy. They work so hard. The executive teams work so hard. Even if they made money when you bought them, the great people just go back to work twice as hard because they want to do well for themselves, their colleagues, and their families, for you. And then by the end, when it all comes together, I mean, I have examples. I won't say the companies, the executives are wearing t-shirts to say a billion dollars on them or something. You know, we're going to make a billion dollars. We're going to go crush it. We're going to go crush it, guys. And everybody is pumped up and their, their team's pumped up. And then you hand out t-shirts that say things. I don't, I didn't do that, but I get it from the guys. They're so pumped up. They've accomplished so much. So- it's inspiring. And then after the transactions, when you see these great executives, you know, they buy an, a great house, you know, they take care of their families. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you specific examples just because there's so many and yeah. I don't want to leave anybody out. But in those transactions, people work so hard. And, and then the closing dinner when you're hugging and kissing, I don't think people truly understand. People think about business as it's like, some people think about business as, as if it's a lot of X's and O's and it's very impersonal. Man, it is so personal. Yeah. Maybe just the way some people do it. The way half the people in the world do it in our business, it's so personal. Yeah. And your heart just explodes with love when it happens, man. Then all of a sudden you wake up 20 years later, you have a sick network of great people that all want to do business with each other. Oh, and yeah. Tons of opportunity comes everybody's way, right? It's, it's great. They don't teach you that early on, but if you can learn it from others, it's a great thing. Right. Switching gears, man. This is big. So you decide your wife is like supremely talented. She gets Ramy Brook off the ground in your apartment, has blossomed into just an incredible business. Why don't you just give a, a quick overview of Ramy and, and what the business is and your role within it? Sure. Sure. Yeah. My wife, Ramy, is incredible. Ramy Brook, and she's a savant of fashion. And anything that goes around that, whether it be jewelry or accessories, yeah, like many people know, but she really is something else. She came home in 2010 and said, I'm going to start a business. I'm looking for something. And she was looking for this elegant, clean, appropriately sexy, I shouldn't even use the word appropriately, sexy clothing that a lot of the contemporary space back in you know, 2008, 2009, even going into 2010 was a little bit more darker and it wasn't flowy and sexy and it was nothing wrong with Vince and other brands, but it was just a different style. And my wife, Rami, loved this classic old Lon Vaughn and early Tom Ford Gucci and just beautiful and elegant and sexy. She saw an opening in the market. Yeah. She came home and said, myself and my friends, we can't find it. We look in our closets, which are full. And we say we have nothing to wear. And I'm like, wow, because she's got a big closet. So there's something to wear in there. Trust me. And <laughs> you're probably sitting in it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I would be if I'd let her. She actually, you know, I have a closet, Tom. She took it. I'm sure. So now I don't have my closet anymore. She actually expanded. Yeah. My closet is her like shoe closet. When she did it, I'll tell you, man, I said, not that she was looking for my approval by any means. She just went and did it. And then within uh, four months, she had built the line of seven, seven pieces of clothing. She had a trunk show at her sister's in New Jersey. She passed that test. She had a trunk show at her friend Harriet's in the city. I walked into that trunk show, Tom. She did $100,000 in one day. And when I walked in, what astounded me, not only was the fact that there was one rack with seven items on it that did 100000 which I didn't realize until that evening, but the love in the room, you know, the vibe in the room, the love in the room. I, I said to myself, these are girls who buy, you know, who can buy anything they want to buy and they're buying Ramey's things. They wouldn't buy, they'd buy some if they liked it just because she's a friend, but they wouldn't buy a lot. And as important of it was the love in the room. It was this power that comes from people in general, but especially women, 
You know, women are just in so many ways better than us. I don't know what else to say, you know, man, they're just more loving and they're just, yep, I hear you. you know, they support each other as we do. They connect. I felt it in the room. And it, I said, when she came home, she was like, wasn't that, wasn't that unbelievable? That was so great. I go, I go, I got to tell you, honey, if you're going to do whatever you want to do, but the love I felt in that room, if you really do continue to make fantastic clothing, you're going to kill it, you know, because you love women you love your friends and they love you and it's beautiful. So she just kept doing it. She did shows. She went around to people's homes and did shows. And then she went to Bergdorf's and got into Bergdorf's that first year. So they all knew her at Bergdorf's as a shopper. And then the personal shoppers were sending their customers to her on the side because they, they want to make their customers happy. And then when she got into Bergdorf's, which doing in your first year is really ridiculously difficult, she was off and she got into Saks and she went to Neiman's and Bloomingdale's and hundreds of specialty stores and just built the business one store at a time. And fast forward now, like post-COVID, which I'm, I don't feel like I even have to ask this question, but I would imagine with people starting to go out and socializing again, like things are flying off the rack. Yeah, things are yeah. flying now. Yeah. And we're doing disproportionately well, I think. I know. I know we are. Yeah. The business as it stands right now, how many people do you have? How many doors are you in? I mean, it's a substantial business now. Yeah. This isn't like a hobby. This is a serious thing. It's a serious thing. I was looking with our e-commerce team at our numbers going back to, I think it was like 2017, 17, 18. And looking at them now, you know, going from 400,000, our website this year, we're going to gross well over 25 million just on our own site. So it's about a $50 million business now growing rapidly. Uh, we're well up over 2019. Last year for everybody was very difficult. We were, but we were only down 12% because our product sells. Now we had a lower margin, but you know, Ramey Brooke, Ramey and her team and our great team make beautiful product that women love. And so we're, we're very fortunate. It's all about product. It's all about your product, yeah, your team and your culture. You know, that's it, man. And we're, we're killing it. You live through that. You guys can live through anything now, right? You've proven Absolutely. you can do it. Absolutely. And we're about, just you asked, we're at all doors at Saks, all doors at Neiman's, all doors at Bloomingdale's. We're in Nordstrom now. We're expanding within, doing great there. And we're in a few hundred specialty stores. So it's becoming a meaningful. Every woman is listening to this or, or will listen to it should be checking out Ramey Brooke. My wife and all her friends wear it and my daughters do as well. And awesome. you know, it's kind of like connects ages together. Um, which is just such a cool thing that we all knew each other personally before all this happened. And congrats to you guys. One question I have, Rob, is going from the guy on the other side of the table who would be stroking a check, investing in a company and yeah. having calls once a week. What have you learned actually, and I give you so much credit for doing it, what have you learned actually jumping into a business and building it that you may not have thought that much about from a private equity standpoint when you were doing that? Well, I think when you build a business, my wife started this business, so I came in to help her achieve her dreams and build a great company. So I was fortunate the first few years I just advised, then I got involved in running it day to day. But what you realize is the level of detail you have to be at. You have to be, you have to have detailed plans. On one hand, you can't hold yourself back and say, I'm going to wait till I have detailed plans to move forward, right? You got to get going. But on the other hand, you have to have really detailed plans and you have to execute at a microscopic level. That's how I, I feel at our company. And maybe because we don't have 10,000 employees, I have the luxury of saying, 
and it's not easy. We're going to we're going to operate at a microscopic level. We are going to plan at a daily basis by the hour in some instances how we do things and certainly on a daily basis and a weekly basis is like a summary, you know, like that's too wide for me. And we're going to plan at a detailed level. We're going to execute. We are going to constantly look at whether we are succeeding or not. And we're going to fix those things because we're not going to succeed on everything. We're going to fail at many things. And we're going to look at where we're not succeeding. We're going to fix it immediately. And then we're going to move forward. We're going to assess it, fix it again, assess it, fix it again. So I guess, Tom, it's operating at that micro level where you are looking at every little detail, like within apparel, you're looking at everything that has to do with design process, tech design process, manufacturing, supply chain, you know, finance, marketing, e-commerce. Every group is operating at a detailed level. And then they're looking at, where's my problem? Fix, problem fix. Most important, period. So I think that's the number one thing I learned is you can't be too detailed when you run your business or you better have somebody next to you who's detailed or five other guys who add up to a detailed human being because you got to have it on your hand. You're posting the details or you're going to, you're going to run out of money. You're going to, you're going to fail, you know, and there's no honor in failing unless you give it a good shot, you know, and giving something a good shot is you're doing your best. So I learned the hard way. I thought I was detailed. I wasn't even approaching the level of detail and paranoia I have, I have now every day. You were at 30,000 feet above sea level, and then, then you were down at 10,000, <laughs> and you thought you were detailed. You got to be feet on the ground, right? <laughs> you got to be like on the bottom yeah. of the ocean. I, I came to your world, yeah. Tom, and it's a humbling world. And so, you know, it's private equity is great, by the way. That's extremely detailed and difficult. It's just when you're running your own business, you know, that's what I learned, the level of detail. And also to be just, it, you just realize ten, tenfold how important your team is and how important people are. You know, it's... It, once you have a great product and we're lucky to have, you know, a leader like Ramey and somebody who, you know, is the business, it's all about your team, right? If you don't surround yourself with great people. Forget it. Who believe in you and believe in the team and believe in the company, uh, you're dead. So yeah. those are the things I learned. Detail orientation and team. I always was a team player, as you know. Yep. But just the importance of people is on, a, on another level. You know, if you get five great people, you can take over the world, you know? Yeah. You know, and you get one bad one. Or not bad. Everybody's got their magic. You know, every human being has magic in them. I really believe that, you know, except for bad people, yeah. you know, but like everybody else has got magic in them and there's some place their magic is going to do great. But when you find those great people who are nice people who kick ass and they got the magic in them that matches with what you're doing, they're on your love train. Like in this instance, they're on the Ramey Brook love train. You can't lose. On the surface, it looks easy, but Ramey Brook is a complicated business. Beyond the design, Ramey and Rob have to source materials, manufacture at scale, manage distribution, coordinate direct sales, market effectively, and manage the workforce, all in an industry that can change at the drop of a hat. I wanted to know how Rob approaches complexity in that business, how he manages it, and how that complexity can actually drive value for Ramey Brook in the future. I think in any business, if you can figure out the complexity and you put in place processes that make them all manageable, then any business is more valuable. And I think every business is complex. Your business too. It may not be as complex because we have a lot of moving pieces with... Yeah, that's what I mean. It is more complex than mine, believe me. A thousand items a year, 
you know, every month. And thank God our design team, Inez and our team and led by Ramey and wow, they are great. So the key is to put in place process to simplify everything. You know, I always, I say to myself, anytime you, you get down, you're like, wow, this is so complex. I say, well, you know, there are people who design, you know, rocket ships, they go to the moon, people are designing drugs. There are very complex businesses out there. We cannot feel in the fashion industry, it is too complex for us. It is not too complex. And other businesses are very personal too, and they have personalities and people have visions and so they're, and they're creative. I've seen the most incredible creative people at companies outside the fashion industry. So and within fashion, we also can't think we're better than other people because this is a creative industry. There is always a place for incredible creative genius and process that allows people to create things the most creatively they can, but have it be done with excellence so their customers get a perfect product that fits perfectly, delivered on time at a great value. And so- Seems so easy. Yeah, <laughs> it's tough. Man. I know. It's process. It's all process. So you got to surround your people, as you know, with people running each area who are great at what they do, who are creative geniuses, and, but who respect process. Because if you don't document things and follow a process, first of all, there's no excuse for it, literally. And you're just not going to do as good a job as you can. And it's a highly competitive world. I always say, yeah. all our competition yeah. is really smart, really rich, yeah. really beautiful, and really hardworking. So how do, how do you beat these guys? You know, it's a, it's a big world. There's, you know, billions of people. Can you imagine how many smart, hardworking, talented people there are there? And, and ones who have access to money. It's better not to think about it. It's better not to think about <laughs> it, but you can. You just have to outwork them. And first of all, not get unlucky, obviously. And then, and then outwork them and work smart and build a great team and a culture. I think everybody knows that the finance industry has a dog-eat-dog -dog reputation. Private equity is no exception. But if there's anything I've learned from Rob, it's how far you can go if you create strong, lasting relationships in the business. Pair that with the kind of detail-oriented approach that Rob brings to Ramey Brook, then you can really go anywhere. As Rob says, details, orientation, and team. I'd like to thank Rob Sharp of Ramey Brook for joining us today. He's so smart that Rob would be successful no matter what he did in his life, and he's maybe the best example of sincere networking I've ever seen in my career. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. We'll see you next time back in the arena.